Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Nadia Hashimi at the Highland Park Community Center in St. Paul. Nadia Hashimi made waves last year with the release of her fiction debut, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, a luminous tale of two women, destiny and identity in Afghanistan, according to Kirkus Reviews. Hashimi's parents emigrated from their native Afghanistan in the 1970s, but a lifelong fascination with their cultural heritage led her to pen The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. The crisscrossing narrative follows two Afghan women, one in the present and the other in the recent past, living as Bacha Posh, young women disguised as young men, a true Afghan practice. Hashimi, a pediatrician by training, received accolades for this lyrical, heartbreaking account of Silence Lives, and is hard at work on a follow-up centered around the experiences of Afghan refugees in Europe. Thank you so much for that kind welcome. Um, it's really good to be here today. And I'm thankful to the Friends of the Library for organizing this event and for bringing me into town. This is my first trip into Minnesota. And um, it's really nice, actually, because it's colder where I am right now. We have more snow on the ground. And I get here, and it looks like this. So I can only assume that your winters are actually pretty mild and pleasant. <laughs> um, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, anything that's organized by a library kind of gets to my heart because I, I'm a person who believes in books and believes that libraries are a way of connecting people with stories that you might not otherwise reach. Um, to expand on my background a little bit and tell you sort of where this story came about, uh, my parents are both from Afghanistan, born and raised there, and they came over to the United States in the early 1970s. My father came directly with the intention of working here for a few years. My mother came a little bit more indirectly she actually had been in Europe on a scholarship getting her master's in engineering. And they left Afghanistan in a very different time period. It was a very peaceful country, a very progressive country when they left. Um, they had the intention of staying here just for a few years and then going back, returning to their homeland. And with the way history took a turn, Afghanistan became a place that was not safe to return to and it was really a place that people were fleeing from instead of going back to. And so Afghanistan became a major producer of refugees and it was one of the worldwide biggest producer of refugees for about 30 years with a diaspora that settled in every corner of the world. Uh, and my family was, was part of that, so I had relatives everywhere. I also grew up in New York and very fortunate to have a very large extended family around me and we had the, the Afghan culture alive in our home. We had, you know, celebrating 
holidays and different traditions. And at the same time, we were all very assimilated into the American culture and parts of our communities. Um, we also just watched Afghanistan from afar. So, you know, anyone who comes from immigrant parents, that you never really leave your homeland behind. And there wasn't a whole lot in the news pre-9-11. Afghanistan was sort of this obscure place that you would really have to pay close attention to hear anything about. And so I remember my father kind of poring over the New York Times looking for little tiny articles that he would find here and there. Or, you know, if Dan Rather came on and said anything about Afghanistan, we would all be hushed-hushed, you know, <laughs> right around the dinner table. So there was just this kind of desire to learn about what was happening over there. And I, I watched my parents just being so curious to understand what was happening in their homeland and what it meant to them. So I also grew up with this real big dichotomy, two different Afghanistans. And so there was the Afghanistan that I would see on television, which was just these dust-covered Mujahideen freedom fighters and piles of rubble everywhere, and just destruction and chaos. And that was a very irreconcilable image compared to you know, what I was dealing with at home. My parents had pictures from Afghanistan. They had stories from Afghanistan. And in their pictures, they were dressed just as any of you are dressed here. They, I remember my father, you know, in front of a hotel that he worked at for, for like a summer job, and it was a tall hotel with a swimming pool out front. And if you saw any of those pictures or heard any of their stories, you would never think that that was the same place that we were watching on the evening news. And so in my mind, there were just two very different countries, and bringing them together and trying to comprehend how that was the same place was a challenge. Um, in the years before 9-11, I watched all these articles and I remember people asking me, you know, where is your family from? And I would tell them Afghanistan and no one could find it on a map. I mean, people asked me if that was in Africa, was it in Europe? I mean, people really did not know. It wasn't on anyone's radar until people started to hear about the Taliban. And the Taliban really put, unfortunately, they put Afghanistan on the map in some ways. Um, they were a regime like no other, and we started to get to know them even more after 9-11. And 9-11 is when the whole world's attention sort of turned to Afghanistan in a very acute and all of a sudden way, and the spotlight was on the whole country. Um, and a lot of Afghans got very uncomfortable with it because all of a sudden it was not the spotlight that we wanted, and the messages were very conflicting. But the Taliban, became notorious for their particularly cruel um, regime. And they were cruel across the board. So they were very restrictive. They had a very heavy-handed religious decrees that they would impose on men and women alike. I mean, men had to grow beards. They had to wear certain religious clothing. Um, but for what they did to women, they became particularly notorious. And just to talk about some of the restrictions, women were not allowed to work outside of the home. Women had to have a male escort. It had to be a direct male relative anytime they left their home. They had to be covered head to toe in that burqa shroud that we've come to know as the you know, iconic symbol of Afghan women. If their ankles were showing, they could get whipped in the street. They could only seek the care of female physicians, which was very difficult to find if you banned women from the, from the workforce. Women with painted fingernails could have their fingers cut off and girls, of course, were not permitted to go to school. They'd painted the windows of homes so that women could not be seen from the outside. They weren't supposed to be seen or heard at all. Laughing out loud was not permitted. There were no women on the radio or on television. And then the list goes on. 
So hearing about these restrictions, while I have the luxury of growing up in this country, um, it made me incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I had and very acutely aware that my counterparts in Afghanistan were not having the same experience that I had. And it wasn't because we had very different families. We had the same family, the same family values, the same education that was being pushed. But the regime that was controlling the country was not allowing. And after 9-11, all of that changed. You know, of course, people knew about Afghanistan. People associated Afghanistan with you know, the most wanted man in the world, with bin Laden. And Afghans were very confused by this because they really did not know who bin Laden was, and it was not the essence of the Taliban regime. But for whatever reasons, all of this kind of came together and introduced these Western nations to come into Afghanistan and oust the Taliban. And the people on the ground there were enormously grateful and still are enormously grateful. I still have family there that we've been in touch with. We have friends and family. And I talk a lot with some of the organizations that are working on the, on the ground level in Afghanistan. And that liberation of women, that goal was actually achieved for the most part. And that was the, the big opening for women to re-enter schools. So coming from a family that placed a lot of importance on education, I remember at one point my father telling me that he would rather go hungry than take anything away from the education of his children. And I did my best. I went to school, became a pediatrician. I was a very happy pediatrician. About a year after I got married, my husband, who's a serious overachiever, um, he knew that I was a book lover, a story lover, and that I sort of had this small passion for writing and he really encouraged me to pursue it and kind of chase down that dream because that's what he's a believer in doing. He's also someone who really believes in the power of language and of books and of writing and communicating ideas and, and creating something that lasts longer than any of us may last. And so that's what I did. And he kind of gave me the space and the room to wrap my head around the idea of actually sitting down to write a story. And when I wanted to sit down and write a story, uh, there were a lot of things that I thought about writing, but the most, one of the most compelling issues to me was the situation for girls in Afghanistan or for women in Afghanistan, particularly because I grew up with this awareness that they had a very different experience than I had had. And so it was kind of hard to let go of that idea once it settled into my mind. I wanted to talk about gender in Afghanistan and specifically about the difference between my mother's generation and what we were seeing today. And so in my mind, we really needed to look at the history of Afghanistan to understand where the women were in the contemporary world that I wanted to discuss. I also thought that if I wanted to talk about gender in Afghanistan, there was one really interesting way of doing it. And that's to deal with this custom that Afghanistan has called the, the bachaposh. A bachaposh being a girl that's dressed as a boy. And so what Afghanistan has created by being such a patriarchal society and placing such value on sons is that daughters have a relative devaluing. So we've created this void for families who only have daughters. They're sort of lacking this badge of honor, um, this son who will you know, carry on the family name and do all of those really important son things. So families will sometimes disguise one of their prepubertal daughters as a son. It's a simple transformation. They'll cut off her hair and, and have her dress in boys' clothing. 
and she's sort of reintroduced quietly into the rest of society as a boy. And there are a couple of reasons why this is done. And one of the most common reasons is actually that there is a superstition that by dressing one of your daughters as a boy, that the next child born into the family will be a true son. And then you won't have to carry on this charade. Um, sometimes there's also practical purposes for having one of your daughters dress as a son. They have more mobility outside of the home. Sometimes they're able to work outside of the home in different ways that a daughter couldn't do. The practice, you know, when I sat down to think about it and I have my pediatrician hat on, has a lot of developmental effects on the psyche of a child as well, because we're talking about someone who's going through developmental stages. And going through developmental stages in a place where, you know, daughters and sons are not equals. Sons are here and daughters are here, and these two genders are in very different places. And so some of these girls, when we look at what's happened to the actual girls who are practicing this, this tradition, um, some of them manage to transition pretty easily. And the transition back to being a girl is supposed to happen before they hit puberty, which is the time that you know, sexuality comes into play and gender makes a much bigger difference. Some of these girls manage it okay. Some of them never want to go back to being a girl. Some of them never want to be married. Some of them have taken their experience and have gone on to become professionals or high-achieving members of society. Maybe they would have done that without the experience of being a bachapoche, without be having that confidence of the other gender. Maybe not. It's hard to say, and we don't really have the research to support any of these ideas, but it would be hard to believe that having that experience, being able to walk down the street, express your opinion more freely, to look people in the eye, all of those opportunities doesn't have some kind of positive effect on at least some of the girls who can take that and really run with it. It's a, it is, it's a practice that's born out of this culture of patriarchy. And you know, while this patriarchy exists, I think that, that custom will still go on. And so that's what brought me to the pearl that broke its shell is wanting to talk about girls using this vehicle of a girl who's actually lived on both sides of the line to discuss what it means to be a girl because she's experienced both, um, both sexes. So the pearl that broke its shell is the story of two Afghan women, and they're separated by a century. Shakeba is the great-great-grandmother of the story. She's born right at the turn of the century. It's a time of monarchs and limited rights for women. She'll see big changes in the course of her lifetime. So I'm going to start by reading part of her story. This is the introduction to Shikeba, who's the great-great-grandmother. And this is really the historical fiction section of the book. Um, I will interject in certain places just to explain the family so that you can get an idea of who's who. Your name means gift, my daughter. You are a gift from God. Who could have known that Shikeba would become the name she was given? a gift passed from one hand to another. She was born at the turn of the 20th century in an Afghanistan eyed lasciviously by Russia and Britain. Each would take turns promising to protect the borders they had just invaded, like a pedophile who professes to love his victim. But parts of Afghanistan were taken, little by little until its borders shrank in like a wool sweater left in the rain. Areas to the north like Samarkand and Bukhara had been lost to the Russian Empire. Chunks of the south were chipped away and the western front was pushed in over the years. In that way, Shikeba was Afghanistan. Beginning in her childhood, tragedy and malice chipped away at her until she was just a fragment of the person she should have been. If only Shikeba had been prettier, something at least pleasing for the eye to gaze upon. Maybe then her father could have hoped to arrange a proper marriage for her when her time came. Maybe people would have looked at her with an ounce of kindness. 
But a clumsy two-year-old Shakeba changed her life in the blink of an eye. She woke from a mid-morning nap and set off to find her mother. Shakeba heard the familiar sounds of peeling in the kitchen and stumbled into the cooking niche. Her small foot caught on the hem of her dress and her arm flailed into the air, knocking a pot of hot oil from a burner top before her mother could reach her. The oil flew out and melted the left half of Shikeba's cherub face into blistered and ragged flesh. Shafika, her mother, screamed and doused her daughter's face with cool water, but it was too late. It took months to heal, as Shafika diligently kept Shikeba's face clean using a compound the local alchemist had mixed for them. The pain got worse as her skin fought to recover. The itching drove Shikeba mad, and her mother was forced to wrap her hands in cloth, especially while she picked away at the dead, blackened skin. Fevers came, so high they made the toddler's body tremble and writhe, and Shafika had nothing to offer, nothing she could do but pray at her daughter's side, rocking back and forth and beseeching God for mercy. Her grandmother came to see her when she heard about the incident. Shafika anxiously waited to hear any helpful advice her mother-in-law might offer, but she had none. Before she left, she suggested only that Shafika pay closer attention to her children and muttered thanks that it hadn't been one of the boys. Shikeba's survival was nothing short of a miracle, another gift from God. Though her face healed, she was not the same. From then on, Shikeba was halved. When she laughed, only half her face laughed. When she cried, only half her face cried. But the worst part was the change in people's expressions. People who saw her profile from the right would begin to smile, but as their view turned the corner beyond her nose, their own faces would change. Every reaction reminded Shikeba that she was ugly, a horror. Some people would step back and cover a gaping mouth with a hand. Others would dare to lean in, eyes squinted, to get a better look. From across the road, people would stop in their tracks and point. There, did you see her? There goes the girl with half a face. Didn't I tell you she was horrid looking? God only knows what they did to deserve that. Her mother covered Shikeba with a burqa when she saw people approaching their home or on the rare occasion when the family ventured into the village. Remember, Shikeba means gift. You are our gift, my daughter. No need to let others gawk at you. Shikeba knew she was horribly disfigured and that she was lucky to even be accepted by her immediate family. In the summers, the burqa was hot and stifling, but she felt safer within it, protected. She was not exactly happy, but was satisfied to stay in the house and out of sight. Her days passed with fewer insults that way. Her parents withdrew even more from the clan and the resentment towards Shafika's aloofness grew. Her brothers, Tariq and Munis, were both energetic, and being just a year in part in age, they could pass for twins. When they were eight and nine, they were helping their father with the field work and running errands in the village. They usually ignored the comments they heard about their sister, but Tariq had been known to throw back insults from time to time. And on one occasion, Munis came home with scattered bruises and a foul temper. He'd had more than he could take of the local boys pestering him about his half-faced sister. Their father had gone to the boys' home to make amends with his parents, but he never reprimanded Tariq or Munis for defending Shakeba. Akala, the baby sister, always smiling, would sing nursery rhymes in her sweet bulbul bird voice and kept her mother and Shakeba's spirits lifted as they did the chores. They were happy keeping to themselves. They didn't have much, but they had everything they needed and never felt lonely. In 1903, a wave of cholera decimated Afghanistan. Children shriveled up within hours and succumbed in their mother's weak arms. Shikeba's family had no choice but to use the poisoned water that coursed through their village. First Munis, and then the others. The illness came quickly and it came strong. The smell was unbearable. Shikeba was stunned. 
She saw her siblings' faces grow pale and thin in days. Akala was quiet, her songs reduced to a soft moan. Shafika was frantic, and Ismail, the father, quietly shook his head. Word came from the compound that two children had died, one from each of Shikeba's uncles. Shikeba and her parents waited for their own bellies to begin cramping. They nervously cared for the others, watching each other and waiting to see who else would fall ill. Shikeba saw her father put his arms around his wife's shoulders as she rocked and prayed. Akala's skin was graying, Tarek's eyes were sunken, Munis was quiet and still. She was 13 when she helped her parents wash and wrap Tariq, Munis, and Akala the songbird in white cloth, the traditional garb for the deceased. Shikeba sniffled quietly, knowing she'd be haunted by the memory of helping her moaning father to dig the graves for her teenage brother and delicate baby sister who had just turned 10. Shikeba and her parents were among the survivors. Thousands died that year. Her family's losses were notches on the epidemic's belt. One week after her three children were buried, Shafika began to whisper to herself when no one was looking. She asked Tarek to help her with the water pails. She warned Munis to eat all his food so that he would grow up to be as tall as his brother. Her fingers moved through the yarn of the blanket as if she were braiding Akala's hair. Then Shafika started sitting idly, plucking individual hairs from her head one by one until her scalp was bare. Then her eyebrows and lashes disappeared. With nothing left to pluck, she resorted to picking at the skin of her arms and legs. She ate her food but gagged on pieces she'd forgotten to chew. Her whispers became louder, and Shikeba and her father pretended not to notice. Sometimes she would listen and then giggle with a lightheartedness alien to their household. Shikeba slowly became her mother's mother, making sure she bathed and reminding her to go to sleep at night. A year later, in the same dismal month of house, Shikeba's languishing mother decided not to wake from sleep, and it came as no surprise. Ismail held his wife's hands and thought how tired they must be from the ringing they'd endured. Shikeba brought her cheek to her mother's and saw that her eyes had lost their desperate glassiness. She thought her mother must have died looking at the face of God. Nothing else could have brought the look of peace so quickly. The house sighed in relief. Shikeba bathed her mother one last time, taking care to wash her bald head, and realizing that her mother had even plucked the hair from her womanly parts. The weight of sadness lifted. Her corpse was shockingly light. By the following day, Shikeba and her father were back in the field to open the earth once more. Her father read a prayer over the mound of dirt, and they looked at each other, quietly wondering who would join next. Shikeba came of age with only her father to turn to, his sparse words, his lonely eyes. She worked beside him day and night, and the more she did, the easier it was for him to forget that she was a girl. He began to think of her as a son, sometimes even slipping and calling her by her brother's names. The village chattered about them. How could a father and daughter live alone? Sympathy gave way to criticism, and Ismail and Shikeba grew even more distant from the outside world. The clan did not want to be associated with them, and the village had no interest in a scarred old man as even more scarred daughter-son. Over the years, Ismail lulled himself into believing that he had always lived without a wife and that he had always had only one child. He managed by ignoring everything. He was the only person who did not see Shikeba's marred face and did not notice that, as a young woman, she might need direction from a female. When she bled every month, he pretended not to smell the soiled rags that she would keep soaking and hidden behind a stack of logs in their two-room home. And when he heard her shed tears, he shrugged her sniffles off as a touch of flu. Shikeba's father took his daughter's son to the fields to help him manage their small plot of land. She hoed, slaughtered, and chopped as any strong-backed son would do for his father. 
She made it possible for him to go on believing that life had always been father and son. She proved to be able-bodied, affirming her father's confidence in her ability to manage the farm. Her arms and shoulders knotted with muscle. Years passed and her features grew coarser. Her palms and soles were thick and calloused. And every day her father's back hunched a bit more, his eyes saw less and his needs grew. There were days where Shakeba was left to run the entire farm and house on her own. Had she been any other girl, she probably would have felt lonesome in this solitary life, but her circumstances were different. The children nearby would always point and tease, as would their parents. Her appearance had been shocking everywhere except at home. People who are beset by tragedy once and twice are sure to grieve again. Fate finds it easier to retrace its treads. Shakeba's father became weaker, his voice raspier, his breath shallower. One day, as Shakeba watched from the wall of stone and mud, he grabbed his chest, took two steps, and crumpled to the ground with a sickle in his grip. Shakeba was only 18 years old, but she knew what to do. She dragged her father's body back to the house on a large cloth, stopping every few steps to adjust her grasp and to wipe away the tears that trickled down the right side of her face. The left side of her face remained stoic. She laid his body in the living room and sat at his side, repeating the four or five Quranic verses that her parents had taught her until the sun came up. In the morning, she began the ceremony she'd performed too often in her short life. She undressed her father, careful to keep his private areas hidden beneath a rag. The ritual watching should have been done by a man, but Shakeba had no one to call on. She would rather have invited Allah's wrath into her home than turn to any of the vile people. She bathed him, turning away as she poured water onto his man parts and blindly wrapping his stiff body in a cloth as she and her mother had done with her sister. She dragged him back outside and opened the earth one final time to complete her family's interment. Shikiba chewed her lip and debated digging one more spot for herself, thinking there'd be no one left to do so for her when her turn came. But too tired to do any more, she said a few prayers and watched her father disappear under clods of earth, disappear like her sister, like her brothers, and like her mother. She walked back to the hollow house and sat silently, afraid, angry, and calm. Shikeba was alone. So that's the, the great-great-grandmother of the story. And for me, the important part was talking about some women who start off with some really big challenges in their life and how they're able to overcome them. Shikeba, as the great-great-grandmother, um, sort of is passed from home to home since she's orphaned and doesn't have a, an immediate family to defend her and look out for her interests. And she doesn't take what's given to her in this life sitting down, so she really puts up a fight every step of the way. She refuses to believe that what she's told is her lot in life is truly it. She lands herself a job working as a harem guard in the palace, the royal palace that's in Kabul for the king. And this is you know, something that I pulled from history, was that one of the kings of Afghanistan had a harem, and he actually used women dressed as men because he didn't trust men to guard his harem ladies. And so she ends up being one of those people. And being in the royal palace makes her privy to certain conversations and certain changes that are sweeping into the country. So she's able to hear what the king is thinking. She's able to hear the voices of his advisors. And she is around different people like the prince and the future queen, Soraya, who's a woman who sort of swept in a new age for women in Afghanistan and championed the cause of women in Afghanistan. And she learned that there are conversations that happen in important places that affect people on a very broad scale. So Rahima 
is the second storyline in the book, and she's the more contemporary girl. She's the great-great-granddaughter to Shakeba. She's in the middle of five sisters, and there are no sons in her family, which, as we've talked about, in a deeply patriarchal society like Afghanistan, is a really big deal. So Rahima's mother decides to make her nine-year-old daughter into a bachaposh, a girl dressed as a boy. And it's a quick physical transformation. Rahima enjoys a short-lived life of liberty. She plays in the streets, she bargains brazenly with shopkeepers, and she becomes her father's favorite child. But at the tender age of 13, her opium-addicted father marries her off to a warlord, and Rahima becomes a child bride and the warlord's fourth wife. And for her, it's a big shock, because not only is she 13 years old, but just a few days ago, she was a young boy. So in order to survive, she draws strength from her connection to her great-great-grandmother and stories that have been passed down to her, and she is inspired by the perseverance of this woman, who is her ancestor. So Rahima goes on to become an assistant to a female parliamentarian through the plans of the warlord, and she lands in Kabul, where she becomes a spectator to the inner workings of Kabul's government, this post-Taliban parliament that has you know, a very decent 20-plus percent population of women who are representatives there by quota. And she starts to get in her mind that she also wants to be a decision-maker in her own life and not someone who sits around and lets everybody else make decisions for her. So talking about this story, it sort of has been a way of looking at gender and realizing that gender is not just a biologic or an anatomic classification. In so much of the world, including our world here, it is also a political and a sociological construct. There are rules for what Shakeba can or cannot inherit. There are rules for what kind of behavior Rahima should or should not engage in. And we sometimes can see milder forms of that here where we live as well. So Rahima lives in a family compound, and her world is sort of defined within the family compound. And what we get to know is that women within the compound sort try to find ways to assert their own independence, to assert their own control, and a little bit of power over their own destiny. And that doesn't always come off in a very positive way, but that's the, the nature of the beast of women trying to find a way to create a world of their own. The marriages that are in the story are not really institutions that are based on love. And oftentimes in Afghanistan, marriages are not based on love. Sometimes they're arranged marriages, which are more of a marriage first and love develops later. Sometimes they're marriages that, are, that have no love that ever appears in the course of their lifetime. But marriages are sort of another obligation that's ascribed to women. It is not a choice for women all the time. So Rima, even more in this world that's dominated by others, is really hungry for this individualism and independence of mind while others are beating into her brain that she has duty, duty, duty. And Rima and, their, and her great-great-grandmother spend their lives really trying to find a way to assert their personal desires against the political world around them, and that should really sound familiar when we think about you know, women across the span of history and across the world. That's really been the story for a lot of people. And some of the issues that I talk about in the book are also because Afghanistan is a land of hyperbole. So like, there are issues that happen everywhere in the world, whereas in another country they might be in lowercase. If we're going to have that issue in Afghanistan, it's going to be in all caps with like seven exclamation points following it. And these issues, these crises that are plaguing the Afghan people are really 
too huge to comprehend when we just talk about statistics. So for me, the best way to talk about them and to kind of convey the impact on the individual was to put it in the form of a fictional novel. But some of the impact, some of the major issues that I talk about are gender inequity clearly, which was a perversely extreme form of it under the Taliban. Things are better now, but there still is a deeply patriarchal society to contend with. And it's been a very uphill battle for women in the country. There's political corruption. Afghanistan has been ranked, when we do things, we do it big. So Afghanistan has been ranked in the top five globally for a few years now by Transparency International for just how corrupt the government has been. There are really dismal literacy rates in Afghanistan. So overall, you know, it depends where you get your statistics from, but we're looking at about 30%. And for adult women, the rates are about 18%. And that really translates into a lot in terms of the life of a woman and her opportunities and what she can really do. Drug addiction is also a major problem since the years of war have begun. So Afghanistan has been known to be a major producer of opium. But at the same time, for many years while they were producing opium, the addiction rates were very low. People were actually not using the opium themselves. It was a trade. It was an export. That has changed. Uh, in my mind, the country has sort of endured this PTSD with all these you know, 30 plus years of war. You have people who are maimed, injured, have been working in very difficult jobs if they have a job at all. And so the rates of addiction are pretty high. In 2009, there were figures that estimated about 10% of Afghans between ages 15 and 64 were actually drug users. And each one of those drug users is not existing on his own or her own. Those are family members who are causing financial problems to their family. Oftentimes, people who are addicted have children who are addicted, who become addicted while they are children, being around it. Um, sometimes parents who are addicted will use the opium to numb their children if they feel like their child is having pain or to get their child to be quiet so that they can go out and do some work. So the addiction problems have actually been inherited. Um, infant mortality, child mortality, maternity mortality, horrible rates. Life expectancy is 61 years, which is pretty low worldwide. And poverty is at 36%. So these statistics are very hard to absorb, and it really doesn't matter what the percentages are when you are that one individual who is affected by that percentage. And what it means that a child who's born in Afghanistan can expect to only live about 60 years. If he becomes addicted to opium, it's not really a big surprise. And sometimes his kids will become addicted. And there's a very good chance that his town may not have a water supply or a functional school because the money that was supposed to go into funding that went into someone's pockets instead. And so that's the magic of the storytelling for me is allowing us to take these statistics and comprehend it in a way where we start to care about one individual whose life we're sort of following through a story. So very often people ask me if I have hope for Afghanistan after everything that I've told you. And if you've read the story, they really ask, is there hope for the girls of Afghanistan and the women of Afghanistan? And my answer to that question is that there is hope. And I have reasons why. The statistics that I've just talked about, if you look at the history of those statistics, those actually, they're actually moving in a better direction. So we are not as corrupt as we used to be. We have a lot more girls in school. At this point, we imagine during the Taliban time period, there were no girls in school. And right now, 36% of the students are girls, which is not perfect. 
but it's a lot better than where we were pretty recently. By a quota that's set by the Constitution, 25% of the parliamentarians are women. And that same Constitution declares that men and women are equal. And that might seem like a small thing, but it is really important to have that integrated into the Constitution, that men and women are equal. In the 2014 elections in Afghanistan, the presidential elections, which were very messy and sorted elections, they actually had a female candidate running for vice presidency. And again, thinking about where Afghanistan was not too long ago, that is a very steep um, amount of progress for women to be making. And the women who are vying for public office are doing so in the face of a lot of backlash. People do not want to see women's faces on billboards. People do not want women campaigning. They do not want women's voices heard in government. And so they're fighting against a culture that's really suppressed them and put them down. They are battling death threats. Some of these women have been attacked, some have been killed. But they are brave enough to go out because they really want to be the voice of their future. They want to be that change that's instituted in making tomorrow. Women are working as police officers. They are working as pilots, judges, governors, taxi drivers. And they're really pushing themselves into the public sphere again. There are organizations like Women for Afghan Women who are taking root in the country, establishing women's shelters throughout the provinces of Afghanistan and employing Afghans to really take on the role of creating shelters and creating safe havens for women and children and finding ways of creating a more um, encouraging and safer family environment. There are groups like Skatistan, which is one particularly cool organization, which brings education and empowerment to the children of Afghanistan through skateboarding. And 40% of their members are girls, and 50% of their members are children who actually work on the streets of Afghanistan. And not only do they give those children an outlet to just skateboard and have a really good time, but they also couple that with a lot of education programs that those children might not otherwise have access to. So some of the best things to come out of writing this book and being able to share it with people, there, there have been a lot. It's been really rewarding. It's been a conversation starter for me. And I've had people actually learn about the history of Afghanistan, learn about the current situation of Afghanistan, learn about the people of Afghanistan in a different way than they would just reading what's on the news or, or you know, watching what you see on television. And it also starts the conversation of, well, what are we doing about gender equality here in the United States? Are we grateful enough for what we have? Are we pushing to make sure that we continue to gain? It's also inspired some compassion and empathy uh, which I'm really grateful for. I had one woman reach out to me and say that you know she read the book and immediately tried to go out and adopt an Afghan child. And I had someone else, a gentleman who's from the United States, who wrote to me and said that this story really gave him a lot of empathy for the situation of women, not only in Afghanistan, but in lots of parts of the world where they were facing similar situations, because this truly is not, none of the situations I talk about are unique to Afghanistan. That's where I've said it, and we might have it in a bigger scale, but they're widespread rampantly. My husband has said that he thinks that more so than this being an important read for women, he thinks it's actually an important read for men, which was something that really uh, hit home for me, and I, I really appreciated him saying that. I had definitely had my daughter on my mind when I wrote this book, and when I hear people say that this is a story they want to share with their daughters to talk about what it means to be a woman in different parts of the world, that also really touches me. Um, so I'm going to do something a little bit different now. And rather than doing another reading from that book, 
I do have a second book that's coming out in July. And before I take questions on Pearl, what I'm going to do is give you guys a little sneak preview of the second book. And this is the first time I'm doing this, so don't tell my publisher. But this is a book that's coming out in July. It's called When the Moon is Low. It's the story of an Afghan family that's fleeing Kabul during the time of the Taliban. The father of the family is assassinated because his views are opposed to the views of the Taliban. And the mother of the family, being that she's living in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, we just talked about what that would be like, with her three children, she makes the really difficult decision that in order to survive, they're going to have to leave. And the family becomes absorbed into this world of the undocumented who are traveling from Afghanistan through Europe, looking to reunite with family and just trying to find a way to make a better life and really putting their lives on the line because they have that much to lose. So I'm going to read you just the prologue from this one. Uh, the mother's story, her name is Fareba. Though I love to see my children resting soundly, in the quiet of their slumber, my uneasy mind retraces our journey. How did I come to be here? With two of my three children curled on the bristly bedspread of a hotel room, so far from home, so far from voices I recognize. In my youth, Europe was the land of fashion and sophistication, fragrant body creams, fine tailored jackets, renowned universities. Kabul admired the fair complexioned imperialists beyond the Ural Mountains. We batted our eyelashes at them and blend their refinement with our tribal exoticism. When Kabul crumbled, so did the starry-eyed dreams of my generation. We no longer saw Europe's frills. We could barely see beyond our own streets, so thick were the plumes of war. By the time my husband and I decided to flee our homeland, Europe's allure had been reduced to its singular sexiest quality, peace. I am no longer a new bride or a young woman. I am a mother, farther from Kabul than I have ever been. My children and I have crossed mountains, deserts, and oceans to reach this dank hotel room, utterly unsophisticated and unfragrant. This land is not what I expected. Good thing all that I coveted from a youthful distance is no longer important to me. Everything I see, hear, and touch is not my own. My senses burn with the foreignness of my days. I dare not disturb the children as much as my heart wishes they would wake and interrupt my thoughts. I let them sleep because I know how exhausted they feel. We are a tired bunch, sometimes too worn out to smile at one another. As much as I'd like to sleep, I feel obligated to stay awake and listen to the nervous banging in my head. I long to hear my son's determined footsteps in the hallway. My wrist is bare, my gold bangles and their melancholy clink are gone. It was my plan to sell them. Our pockets are too empty for us to brave the rest of our journey. There is still a long road ahead before we reach our destination. Salim, my son, is so eager to prove himself. He's more like his father than his adolescent heart could realize. He thinks of himself as a man, and much of that is my doing. Too many times I've given him reason to believe he is one, but he's not much more than a boy, and the unforgiving world is eager to remind him of it. I'm going, mother, he'd said. If we hide in a room every time we're nervous, we'll never make it to England. There was truth to what he said. I bit my tongue, but the gnawing feeling in my stomach condemns me for it. Until my son returns, I will stare at the sickly white walls, paintings of anchors, faded artificial flowers, I will wait for the walls to collapse, for the anchors to crash to the floor and the flowers to turn into dust. I need Salim to come back. I think of my husband more now than I did in those days he stood by my side. What foolish and ungrateful hearts we have when we are young. I wait for the doorknob to turn, for my son to enter, boasting that he's done for our family what I could not. I would give anything for him not to risk as much as he does. 
but I have nothing to barter for such a naive wish. All I have is spread before me, two innocent souls lightly stirring in their own troubled dreams. I can touch them still, I remind myself, and Salim will return, God willing, and we will be as close to complete as we can hope to be. One day, we will not look over our shoulders in fear or sleep on borrowed land with one eye open or shudder at the sight of a uniform. One day, we will have a place to call home. I will carry these children, my husband's children, as far as I can and pray that we will reach that place where, in the quiet of their slumber, I too will rest. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Nadia Hashimi and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman who lived in Afghanistan for a short time in the 1960s. She remembers educated women having a greater role in Afghan society, running hospitals and other organizations. She asks Hashimi what happened to those women and why their role has changed so drastically in the past few decades. What you're talking about is really my mother's generation. And so those were the women who were very engaged in society, seeking professional um, careers and, and really part of a, a world in a different way. So. What happened with a lot of those women, a lot of those families in general during the time of the Soviet invasion, if you think about it, you know, th those were the middle to upper class people. And those were the people with the resources and the, the know-how to flee the country when things were getting really bad. And so the, the mass exodus of people were not the, the people who were already impoverished, those were the people who stayed behind. But the people who had those resources, who had a bit of education, those were the ones who were able to get out um, much sooner. And they've resettled everywhere. So, you know, in the United States, for example, there's a huge pocket of Afghans living in Virginia. There's another that's in California. And New York is also a major center for Afghans. Um, Toronto has a huge Afghan population. Australia and, you know, certain areas in Europe as well. And when you go and you meet the people who live in Virginia, for example, or in New York, uh, my parents' contemporaries, all of those women that I speak to were working while they were living in Afghanistan. And so these women, at least you know, from what I have seen and read, these women are dispersed all over the, all over the country. Um, you know, I have friends whose mothers were OBGYN physicians or, or you know, people working in government in Afghanistan. And that's that generation that you're talking about that you had experienced while you were there. And that, like I said, is that time period that is really hard to reconcile with the Afghanistan that we're looking at today and what's happened to women during the Taliban time period. Some of those women have actually gone back to Afghanistan. Um, I have, for example, one family friend who is in my mother's generation, and she's gone back and works very closely with the female parliamentarians. So in my research for the book, she was a big resource for me because she had so much experience with the female parliamentarians, with the resource center that they've built for the female parliamentarians, and sort of the inner workings of what's happening with them. So a decent number of women have actually gone back to try to help in the reconstruction of their, of their country, but it's also very hard because people who left during that time period, like my parents, have been settled into the United States for you know, 30 plus years. And if you live here for 30 plus years, my parents feel their roots are here now. So it is also a challenge to 
gather up the people who would be such a resource in the reconstruction of a nation, because these are people who've gone on with their lives and have you know, settled into their new countries, wherever that may be, have children here, have you know, new jobs, if they've been able to pick up and kind of you know, carry on with their professions. Um, but that is the problem with these kinds of situations that country is that it was a big drain. You know, all the people who were capable and, and knowledgeable and had some skills left. And so we were left with people who, under 30 years of war, really could not you know, have the skills or the, the um, abilities to pick it up once the war ended and recreate the society. Our next question focuses on Hashimi's career as a pediatrician and how it informed her writing of the pearl that broke its shell. You know, my career as a pediatrician, I've given it some thought because sometimes you think going from medicine to a career in writing um, or even a hobby in writing, they seem like very different uh, careers or, or, you know, activities to be engaged in. But in my mind, it's really not. You know, as a physician, when I sit down, especially as a pediatrician, when I sit down with a family, I'm listening to their story. And it's not just, sometimes it's not just the illness, you know, it's not just the earache that you have to deal with. You have to deal with how that illness impacts the rest of the family. And it's really a story. So it's a story for each of these characters and, and sometimes you're sorting out the dynamics. Sometimes it's really the dynamics that are more of an illness than the actual disease that they're coming in with. Sometimes they're not really coming in with the disease, but they're coming in more with the story of what's happening in their family and what's happening in their home. And so as a physician, in order to really pinpoint what's going on, you have to pay really close attention to what's happening in their story. Um, for example, just recently I saw a adolescent girl who's a freshman in high school, and her mother has been taking her from you know, one doctor to another because she's been having severe belly pains and she's been vomiting in the mornings and they were concerned that she may have an ulcer, that she may have all the, so she's had tests done, she had an ultrasound done. And I sat down and talked with them. Um, I had met her aunt before I met them. And I said, I bet she's nervous about something. And you get to know the dynamics of what it means to be a ninth grader in a new school where you don't really have friends. And I sat down and chatted with her and she just fell into tears. It was that she felt really uncomfortable with her body. She felt like everybody around her was so much smarter than her, prettier than her, knew how to do all these really cool things, and she wasn't that person. And so it's just, it's the, the key thing of just listening to people and understanding what they're experiencing. And that's the same thing when you're writing, it's just being able to connect with a character or create a character that people are able to connect with and, and telling their story in a way that will make sense for somebody else. Another audience member asked what kind of role religion played when her parents lived in Afghanistan and how that has changed over the years. So the Afghanistan that my parents grew up with, when, you know, I think I grew up with a very similar to religion to what they grew up with. Religion in our home and in my parents' home, the, the religion that my grandparents have sort of passed down to us, is something that blends in with life. It does not control life. It does not dictate life. It enriches life and gives life a little bit of structure in terms of holidays or what you do on Friday instead of Sunday, you know, where we do it here. But it's something that was just part of their life and did not um, tell them exactly how they were supposed to live their moment to moment from morning till evening. And that's what, you know, this fundamentalism movement has really done is it's changed the focus from 
this life to this focus of this kind of obscure, you know, then the afterlife. And people in Afghanistan were not really focused on the afterlife. They were very much focused on that life. They were really enjoying that life. And there was not this um, condescending attitude that what they were engaging in that was enjoyable, that that was negative. People loved music. People loved poetry. They loved parties. I mean, they would, there were parties all the time for the families who could afford it. And even the families who can't afford it throw parties. Even now in Afghanistan, when families have weddings, they have weddings for like 500 people because they just really love a party. And so they've been able to kind of step back from that domineering, really conservative religious viewpoint and go back to what was a more natural fit for them. But it's going to take a really long time because, you know, you bring in this really conservative regime and it sort of trickles into the mindset of people. And you get these people that drill it into you and it changes the culture. So everything that we believe here in the United States is because the people around us believe it too. And there's a little bit of like, you know, a, a herd mentality where you start to believe that things are okay because the people around you believe in those same values and those same norms. And that really changed in Afghanistan. But you can also see a very quick change going in the opposite direction. The part of the reason why the Soviet Union was coming in, I mean, there was a, a more communist movement inside of Afghanistan itself. So there was a communist party that had taken control of the government. And that really had an open door effect for the, for the Soviet Union to come in and invade. And the you know, movement of communism is a very secular movement. And in my mind, that was probably a bit too secular for the people of Afghanistan. And so the rebuttal to that was you know, the freedom fighters who came in with a more conservative flavor. And those freedom fighters were the Mujahideen that were funded by the United States because you know, the Cold War was in play at that time. But it's politics kind of creating these religious sways, also this pendulum effect. So it is going back in a more moderate direction, um, despite what you see happening in other parts of the world. But secularism had a place in Afghanistan, a very solid place in Afghanistan. And I think that's what will probably make it easier for the country to return to that. This audience member wonders if Hashimi believes that the average Afghan woman feels safe in today's Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a very difficult place to paint with one brush. The countrysides are very different than the cities. Um, that being said, you know, the countryside's always more conservative, more traditional. Uh, a lot of women actually prefer the burqa because they don't have to worry about men looking at them and they feel really comfortable with it. They feel protected. Um, in the cities, things are, are different. Women are definitely out there. They're engaging in you know, the workplace. There are salespeople that are you know, engaging people on the street. Women are actually working as salespeople trying to get people to buy things. So they're very much in the public view. That being said, Afghanistan is just like many other countries. So I don't know if you saw recently, there was a woman who made a video of herself walking through New York and all the cat calls and the unwanted comments that she had gotten. And you know that happens in lots of different countries. And Afghanistan is one of those countries too. So I think it was two weeks ago, there was a young woman in Afghanistan who's uh, sort of this visual artist. And in order to make a statement, what she did was she put on this um, suit of armor that was very form-fitted. <laughs> So you could see you know, the shape of cleavage, and it fit around her waist and you know, accentuated her curves. And she wore this suit of armor with you know, clothing underneath it so that she was actually covered, but the suit of armor really brought out her shape. And she took a walk through the streets of Kabul. And the pictures from this, you see men just surrounding her, looking at her. And her point was, 
just to bring attention to what it's like to be a woman walking through the streets of Kabul, which in my mind, I immediately thought to that New York video that we had seen. I'm like, I don't know if it's all that different. Um, but the pictures that she had of you know, the attention she was getting, that negative attention, had gone viral. But she's actually made a, she's made a voice for the, the, the cause. Um, and actually, very recently, in the last week, there were a group of men who protested violence against women. It was a very impressive picture to see a group of Afghan guys wearing the burqa. And they lifted the burqa <laughs> and showed their faces, and they had signs saying they were protesting all forms of violence against women. That's not something that we've really seen in Afghanistan. So, and that's another sign that the, the tides are changing. Our next question is how Hashimi found time to write two novels, work as a pediatrician, and raise children. I'm a parent. I have three children and a parrot. Sometimes <laughs> the parrot is sometimes more demanding than any of the children. Um, for me, it's been um, just finding a good balance. So I am now at the point where I work as a pediatrician part-time. I have a very supportive husband who really has given me, you know, as Virginia Woolf says, you need a room with a view, you need a little bit of space, you need, a, you know, you need a, the means to do it. Um, I've also seen writers talk about, you know, to be a writer in the world today, you need a sponsor. And that's really true, because if you put your full-time efforts into writing, you're pretty much guaranteed poverty. And so everybody who wants to be a writer either has a spouse that will support them as they're trying to pursue this, or they have to do it on a very part-time basis for a really long time, because this is not, you know, this is not that career. Um, but for me, it was really, I wanted to write the story. And so I therefore had to make writing a priority, and I had to set aside the time to do it. And anything that really is a priority, people find a way to make that it fit into their schedule. So whether it's, you know, that people who exercise or people who have a hobby, I mean, you do find a way to fit it into your schedule. Hashimi was next asked how she was able to write a novel that feels so authentic about a time in which she didn't live and a country where she didn't grow up. So there was, um, the historical parts of the story were in some ways easier because I had to, you know, I could turn to textbooks that have been written about Afghanistan and there, um, like Lewis and Nancy Dupree ran a foundation where they did a lot of archaeological studies in Afghanistan. Um, Nancy Dupree, his wife, has outlived Lewis Dupree, and she actually still runs a resource center that's in Afghanistan that has you know, lots of archives and lots of research done on the history of Afghanistan. And so his books have been published and are available. And they talk about the history in sort of an interesting way where it's not just a timeline and facts, but it's a little bit more into the personalities of that time period. Um, I also would look at you know, black and white photographs from that time period, and you sort of have to start to imagine what it would be like to walk into those photographs and, and paint a picture through that. I tried to stay really authentic to the technology of that time period, to you know, the economies of the local areas. To talk about the contemporary Afghanistan, I did, of course, you know, draw on my upbringing, so the things that people had talked about. You know, I think I probably listened to my family a little bit more than I ever thought I did when I was growing up. Um, because there are things that people would talk about that sort of found their way into the story. Uh, just, you know, different customs and ways of life for living in Afghanistan, which is a bit different than living as an Afghan outside of Afghanistan. I also happen to have um, a husband who grew up in Afghanistan, was born and raised there, and he left the country after he'd finished high school and had actually started some college classes. So, 
He was also sort of a, you know, a, a sounding board to make sure that I was staying very authentic to the experience of people in Afghanistan. And you know, the litmus test for me was getting the story out there and having a lot of my cousins who grew up in Afghanistan read it and come back to me and say, how did you know that? You know? And so that really helped me um, just kind of affirm that what I was doing and, and the, the reality that I was creating was an authentic experience for the readers. Our final question of the evening comes from an audience member asking Hashimi about the oral storytelling tradition and what role women have played in it. Yes, um, so women are actually really big in the storytelling tradition. And you know, that's by nature of, of the women's role in the home is that you know, women have the children surrounded around them. I remember being around my grandmother and hearing stories. I remember kind of, you know, at sleepover parties, cuddling up next to one of my aunts and she would you know, pass along stories and tell us stories about what um, she had learned from her ancestors. And you know, part of it probably feeds off of the illiteracy so people weren't always writing things down. But there is a big tradition of oral storytelling. And um, I think that probably will continue on. So women in Afghanistan are, are it's sort of been a very deceiving perception because when they're covered in that blue burqa, you almost get this feeling that they're very meek, they don't have a voice, they really don't say much, and they, they don't really have a role in the home other than just sort of you know, being chattel and, and cooking and cleaning and things like that. But when you lift that burqa, the women that are under there are so feisty and so vocal, and sometimes within their homes, they really create the persona of the matriarch. Um, and there's actually a collection of these little poems that are in the Pashtun culture of Afghanistan. And these little poems, some of them are kind of racy, some of them are very political, but these are poems that the women tell. And they tell them in this way so that the men won't really get you know, straight offended and they're sort of anonymously done. But they do these little you know, cutesy poems that really express themselves. So there is a big tradition for women to kind of use literature or words to express their views. So I want to thank you all for being here tonight, for helping me share this story and the other story too, and the broader meaning with it, with, of it with you. And thank you for supporting the humanities because that is really our humanity, right? This is where it all shines. Thanks so much, everyone. Well, that's it from our Highland Park Community Center event with Nadia Hashimi in St. Paul. Catch our next Club Book event with Jonathan O'Dell at 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 17th at the Prior Lake Library. O'Dell is the author of Miss Hazel and the Rosa Parks League, a story of two civil rights era mothers, one wealthy and white, the other poor and black, bound together in unexpected ways. Meet Jonathan O'Dell, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Aroundtown Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. 
Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.